we have a savior that's stronger than our sin. We have a savior that's stronger than our sin. And sin can do nothing but destroy us. It can do nothing but destroy our own lives, our own souls. It can do nothing but destroy our relationships. It can do nothing but destroy our kids. It can do nothing but destroy our friendships. It can do nothing but destroy what is life-giving. And we have a Savior stronger than our sin. But sin makes some really good promises, doesn't it? It makes the promise that you're going to fit in if you will just. It makes the promise you'll be popular if you will just. It makes the promise you will be loved if you will just. It makes the promise, here's what real life, you're going to have real life, you're going to have real peace. Your insecurities will be gone. You will be fulfilled. That's the promise of sin. Don't believe it. Sin isn't going to fix it. It's not going to make it better. It's not going to give you the peace inside that you think it's going to give. It's not going to give you what it promises. We have a Savior that's stronger than our sin. But sin makes such good promises. And I want to beg you, don't believe it. Don't believe that it's going to make it better. Don't believe that's where life is. Don't believe that you're going to be happier in another situation. Don't believe you're going to be happier if you just give in. Don't believe it's going to give you life. It's not going to give you life. It only has the power to destroy. Run from it. Run from it. And I know it's not easy. So recruit other people around you to run from it. As far and as fast as you can make war with it. Don't make peace with your temptations. Don't make peace with what you're doing to fit in. Don't make peace with what you're watching on the computer screen or on your phone. Don't make peace with it. Don't make peace with the gossip. Don't make peace with the self-righteousness. Don't make peace with the pride. Don't make peace with the relational discord that you're living with. Don't make peace with it. Make war with it. Don't make peace with your excuses for what you're doing. Make war with it. Because sin will destroy you. It cannot do anything else. And we have a Savior that is stronger than our sin. Because you're giving in or you have given in. You've allowed yourself to be trapped by it. You know the misery of it. But you think if you just do it one more time, then it will be better and it won't. Or... The tape of lies that Satan tells you that you don't have a savior stronger than your sin. That you, your shame is rightfully deserved and it is. But there's a savior that took your shame. And we don't have to despair over it. We can say no to to shame because we have a savior that's stronger than our sin. Because all that shame is going to do is trap you in the cycle of sin because you won't have the the sense of who God is and the affirming love that he has over you in Christ, not by your works. To then go war against sin is a love child of God, not someone who thinks they can keep the law on their own. Sin can only destroy. And we have a Savior that is stronger than sin. Let's be a people that help each other war. Let's be friends that won't let our friends go enslaved into sin without a word from us. 
without a fighting word from us, without a praying word from us. Let's don't be the kind of friends that let our friends be enslaved to sin, destroyed by sin, families consumed by sin. Let's don't be that kind of people. Let's be the kind of people that help each other make war, not truce, not peace with sin, war with it. Let's pray. Father, show us Jesus in his blinding beauty and his blinding glory. Show us that he is stronger and sin is broken with its power. Help us see Jesus and in Jesus we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. We want to see Jesus, Father. That we can say no to sin and no to shame and no to despair. We can war against it as conquerors. God, help us. Help us to be people that make war, gospel war. Help us to be people that speak what is true to our souls and to the lies of our temptations. Help us to be people, Father, whose the shackles of sin are broken off because we have a Savior that's stronger than them. Help us to be those kind of people. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Verses 5 through 11. And the issue that's being dealt with is exactly what we're talking about. Sin that destroys and a savior that is better. The gospel uses discipline to restore people. Not to be repaid. Not in order to be repaid. The gospel uses discipline to restore. We have a savior that's stronger than our sin. We have a savior that looks at our sin Nails it to a cross. Declares us righteous. And that's the good news of the gospel. You see you could not live a life pleasing to God apart from Jesus. You are a sinner. And you're not just a sinner because you tell some lies. Or you do some bad things. Or you gossip. Or you're proud. Or you're lustful. Or whatever you think. You're a sinner because you're a sinner. Like by your nature. You are born apart from God. You were born dead in your sins and trespasses. That's who you are. And then you just live it out with your whole life. And you don't have any way to do anything other than that. But you think, no, I'm not that bad. Well, that's called self-righteousness. And it's one of the worst things in Jesus' eyes that he faces. Not that bad. And so what's the remedy? What's the hope that God sent his son into the world fully human, fully God, and the life you couldn't live, he lived. The sinless, perfect, spotless, totally in love with the Father, everything for the Father's glory, the perfect life that you were designed for. He lived it. And then he died on a cross for your sins. And he was buried and he killed the debt of sin. He paid the debt of sin. He removed the wrath of God from the sin of all who are his. But he did not stay dead. He rose again from the dead. And he sits at the Father's right hand who has sent his Holy Spirit with his gospel that all who turn, all who repent and believe, he will save. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus, believe in your heart, Jesus, you will be saved. That's the gospel. But then after the gospel, what comes next? You still aren't going to live a perfect life. You still will not live a sin-free existence, not till you get promoted from this place. 
You will war against flesh and you will war against sin and you will war against layers of pride in your life and you'll war against lusts and temptations your whole life. And you will fall short of the glory of God. So what then? If I'm trying to pay Jesus back for this this salvation he's given me, but then I keep going into debt with my sin, what am I going to do? Stop all of it. Turn and believe in Jesus and he will be faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and clean you from your, all your unrighteousness. That's what you do. Every sin has a savior that's stronger than our sin. Not just the stuff before you were saved, the stuff after and the stuff forever until you get to glory and it's gone. And man, when you feel the weight of that struggle, heaven looks a whole lot more beautiful than we make it out to be. Can you imagine no longer facing a temptation of any sort? No longer comparing the way you look to the person next to you. No longer having to struggle with self-righteousness and pride. No longer having those lustful thoughts. No longer gossiping or slandering or jealous or whatever your thing is. That's going to happen one day. But until then, you will need a Savior stronger than your sin. And if you will turn, and if you will confess... He will receive you back every single time. Not to earn your way back, but to immediately be restored back. That's what he does. Let's look at it in the text. The gospel uses discipline to restore, not be repaid. Verse 5, chapter 2. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, I have for, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. So the first step we're going to take, speak about issues in a way that doesn't add unneeded shame to the offender. Speak about issues in a way that doesn't add unneeded shame to the offender. I want you to think about this. When somebody really makes you mad and you go sit down in a coffee shop with a friend, what comes out? Every microscopic detail of the offense. Everything they've done wrong, everything they've said wrong, a few extra things for good measure just to make sure they're really on your side about it. And we just amplify every fault and we amplify every word and we think the worst possible motive behind every word and we magnify the offense. And when we do that, we add more and more shame and more and more uh, discredit to the other person. Some of y'all do that in your marriage. You sit down with your girlfriends And you amplify what's wrong with your husband and what's wrong with your marriage. Some of y'all do that with your kids. Some of you do it with with just friends that have offended you or your co-workers. And we amplify what's wrong. But when we grow in maturity and when we grow in grace and we grow in humility, there's a way to talk about our problems in in a way that's helpful and clarifying without heaping on people discredit and without heaping on people shame. And I would encourage you to do that. So if you need to sit down with a girlfriend and you need to have a good conversation about your husband and about your marriage, do that because we're meant to be bound together and helping each other. But do it in a way that keeps the details 
limited to what clarifies the situation, limited to what to really is going to help you, not what is going to amplify the embarrassment, shame, or discredit of, the, of your spouse. There's so few things you can do more destructive than to, to play the tape of your heart of the faults of the person that you're close to. Or sit down and ask for help without magnifying the shame and embarrassment about your kids or about the friend or roommate or whoever is not in the room that you're talking about. Do it in a way that the details are confined to what's necessary to be helpful. That's an act of maturity. That's an act of humility. That's an act that is going to help you in your relationships and help you be restored to other people. Not increase in your own heart the bitterness against them or build up in the heart of another person a bitterness against them. Keep the details limited to what's necessary. Now look at how Paul does this in in the text. (coughs) Sorry, the pollen's still killing me. This verse transitions the discussion. Paul, for the first part, has been like, here's my integrity. Hold my life up. Look at my life. It passes examination. So, right, Paul's defending his own integrity. But now he's flipping to the other side of the equation. See, he wrote this letter. Like they, he, he, he shows up in Corinth, and they run him out of town. They shame him. They accuse him. They build an opposition against him and get him out. And, and basically, he leaves in disgrace. So he writes a letter back to them. Instead of visiting, because he knows a visit's going to blow everything up, he writes a letter back to them. And what seems to have happened is through that letter, the majority of the church repented. The majority of the church realized, what have we just done? Paul is our founding apostle. Paul is the reason we're in the faith. Paul has always spoken the truths of God to our life. What have we done? And they repent. They are deeply convicted and deeply changed, and they turn back. And then one of the ways they show they turn back is they have now taken some of these false apostles from the outside, but also some of the leaders within the church that actually caused this faction, and they have disciplined them. So one of the tests of their zeal was that we dealt with those who caused the problems. And this letter is kind of the response to that. And so he says in verse 5, now if anyone has caused pain... What is he talking about? If anyone, the the person, and he knows who this person is, and they know who this person is. And he knows what they did, and all the church knows what they did. But look at the way he speaks about the issue. There's not a name in the text. The indication is this man repented also after he was disciplined by the church. He was restored to God, but the church was not yet ready to restore him. And so, if this person has caused pain, this person has caused friction within the church, this person has opposed me directly, this is where you would step in and say, give him everything you got. Make sure he pays. Make sure he feels the weight of his guilt. Make sure we get even. Make sure we totally handle every bit of penance and everything we can get. Make sure he feels his wrong. But look how Paul talks about him. If anyone... You know who the anyone is. I know who the anyone is. Caused pain. You know what the offense was. I know what the offense was. But what he does is he minimizes the details of this person's life. Or minimizes the details of this person's um, offense. So that he's not heaping shame on this person. That makes him harder to be restored to Jesus and each other. But easier. Is that the way you handle the people that have offended you? How can I make it easiest for them to return to Jesus? Not how can I get back at them for every single wrong they've done? How can I make them feel the weight of what they've done wrong? And that's what Paul does. So he calls out people in other letters who are non-repentant. 
He calls out people in other letters for their offenses against the cross and their offenses against the church. But in this case, he doesn't. Why? To minimize the details of offense because he wants this brother reconciled. He wants this brother restored because he's already repented. And so he knows that if he goes, starts calling him out and relisting the offenses, it's harder to do that, not easier. That's a mark of maturity in Paul's life that we should aspire to. How do I make it easier for people to return to Jesus and to return to fellowship, not harder? How do I discipline in a way? Because this discipline is designed to bring life to this person, and it has. So who is this guy? That's one of the questions the commentators ask. Who is this guy? And most commentators up until recently thought it's the guy from 1 Corinthians 5. So in 1 Corinthians 5, there's a guy for, you know, young ear audiences, the best way I can say it. He had started a relationship with his stepmom and continued it. And so the church is like not at all ashamed of the fact that they got a guy and his stepmother who are, who are now in a relationship. They're not worried about it at all. Instead, they're actually boasting about it. And so Paul calls them to discipline him, remove him from the church so that hand it over to Satan so that his flesh might be destroyed in hopes that his spirit would be saved in the day of judgment. That's the purpose of discipline. What is it going to take to drive him back to Jesus and find salvation, find restoration? That's the goal, right? That's always the goal. And so a lot of commentators thought it was the same guy. Now he's being restored in second Corinthians, but most modern conversations, that's not who it is. Because clearly the issue in chapter 2 is not a moral offense, you know, relationship with your stepmom. The, the issue in chapter 2 is a broken fellowship who led a faction and an opposition against Paul. That's the issue. So it's not the same person. In fact, we don't know who this guy is. That's the wisdom of Paul. That's the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. For all of eternity, it could be recorded, this is the guy that had the faction. Or for all of eternity, it could be recorded... This guy was confronted, this guy was disciplined, and this guy repented and was restored to full fellowship in the church. And that was, that's what Paul was going for. And remember, his offense was Paul. He came for Paul. But look what Paul says. If anyone has caused you pain, he has not caused it to me. Could you say that about the person that's hurt you most deeply in your life? Could you say that about a person that, that drove a dagger into your relationships with other people through sin, not, not the right thing? That's what Paul says. If he's caused offense, it wasn't to me. That's the maturity level that Paul has reached, that this guy's sin and this guy's offense, it's not personal that I called you to deal with it. It's not personal that I called you to address him. And, said, and so, in, in fact, as he goes on, it's not about me, but not to put it too severely, it's to all of you. And this is an essential principle about your sin. You think it's private. You think it just affects you. You think that somehow you can confine your sin and its consequences to you, but you can't. Sin's consequences never stay alone with the person who sins. It always ripples out. It ripples out to your spouse and it ripples out to your kids and it ripples out to your grandkids and it ripples out to your Sunday school class and it ripples out to your church and it ripples out to your friendship circles. It never stays confined. And that's what Paul's pointing out about this sin. Look, if anyone has caused pain, if anybody has done this sin, it wasn't to me, even though it was actually directly to Paul that the sin happened. 
But it wasn't to me because I'm not as interested in payback. I'm not interested in this being personal. I'm interested in this guy's restoration. But he did this to all of you. How many of y'all have been part of a church split or church problems or most of us? Yeah. Have seen it happen. If you hadn't seen it happen, you know somebody really close to you that have. And it had devastating consequences on them probably. It probably has scarred them in ways that they still carry to this day. Or scarred you in ways you still carry to this day. And I think this is the point Paul is making. Look, it wasn't just me. I don't want to say this too severely, but it impacted everybody. There may have been ten people in this church that caused the split. There may have been ten people in this church that mobilized a bunch of people who didn't have any involvement whatsoever to come against Paul and run him out of town. And what he's saying is, but it affected all of you. And I want to just challenge you that if you're someone who likes to be discontent or you're someone who likes to to get their own way or you're somebody that likes to kind of push against the church, the selfishness of breaking a church or blowing up a class or blowing up a set of relationships, the selfishness of that, it doesn't stay with you. And it's so much about you that you're willing to blow up 250 people's lives to put scars on them that will carry for life or kids who may never come back to church once their parents stop making them because you had to have your way. Think how destructive that is. Think how ungodly that is. That you would leave a mark on generations because you wanted your way. And so that's what he's saying. It's not just me and it's not personal. It's what you did impacted so many other lives. All of you are affected by this issue. And so I just want to challenge you. There is a savior greater than your sin. There's a savior greater than your spouse's sin. There's a savior greater than your kid's sin. There's a savior greater than the person in church or your friend group that has hurt you. There's a savior greater than their sin too. And Jesus wants them restored to you and restored to him. He doesn't want them punished for their offense, except for to the amount the punishment is going to draw them back to him. Will that be the heart you talk to your friends with? Will that be the heart you ask for counsel with? Will that be the heart that you have that conversation, that chat session with? Will that be the heart you carry? I need to talk to somebody about this, but I need to talk to them in a way that clarifies and helps, not heaps against this person. I want to encourage you to do it that way. Second step we're going to take. Repentance should be met with forgiveness and support, not demands for penance. Forgiveness should be met with, uh, repentance should be met with forgiveness and support, not demands for penance. Grace is Scandalous. Grace is scandalous. Grace is offensive. C.S. Lewis uh, said, everyone loves, uh, the idea of forgiveness is a beautiful idea to everyone until they need to actually do it. Grace is desperately offensive. And if you go into the Bible, there's all these stories about grace and you think, that can't be it. There's one about some day laborers. They're just standing around waiting to get hired. Comes in first thing in the morning. The guy's like, go work for me. I'll pay you a day's wage. Comes in a couple hours later. He finds a new group. Hey, go work. I'll pay you what's fair. Comes in a few hours later. Go work. I'll pay you what's fair. Comes with like no time left in the day. Going to work an hour. Just, hey, head over to the field. I'll pay you what's fair when all this is done. And he starts with the people that worked one hour. Day's wage. Work three hours, day's wage. 
worked five hours day's wage. And these guys at the beginning are thinking, man, we're going to get taken care of here. Day's wage. How offensive is that to you? If not, you didn't hear the story right. You go in for a shift at six o'clock and you get paid the same at six o'clock in the morning and you get paid the same amount as the girl that comes in and cleans up at the end of the night for like an hour. You're not offended by that. Come on. I know the way you talk about your bosses when he hadn't done anything wrong. How are you thinking about your boss then? What do you mean? They got eight hours of pay for an hour to work. I actually work those eight hours. Grace is offensive. Or. Woman of the night finds out Jesus is in a Pharisee's house. Having lunch with all these great religious people that are so much more righteous than she is. And she goes in there, weeps all over the feet of Jesus, wipes his feet with her hair, kisses his feet. And Jesus says, those who are, or those who are forgiven much, love much. Grace is scandalous when you really think about it. And then there's a, a Pharisee, religious leader, and a tax collector. And they go into the temple to pray. And the tax collector lists his spiritual accomplishments for God. Hey God, let me pray my resume to you, just so you're aware. And then the tax collector cheats people, defrauds people, hated traitor. And he just can't even look up to God, hits himself in the chest. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And what does Jesus say about him? Justified. Justified. Righteous. Come on, doesn't he have to pay some people back to get righteous? Don't you see how he's cheated people? The Pharisee at least didn't cheat anybody. Righteous. Thief on the cross next to Jesus, hurling accusations at him in one moment... Asking to say, remember me in paradise the next. You'll be with me in paradise today. That's scandalous. That's scandalous. And that's the gospel. And it's not just the gospel to go from lost to saved. It's the gospel to go from broken relationship to mended relationship. It's the gospel to go from disciplined to restored. It's the gospel to go from fights in your marriage to peace in your marriage. It's the gospel that goes from wars with your kids to peace with your kids. It's the gospel that goes from uh, fights among your roommates or, or broken relationships in your friend group or ministry or church to whole. It's scandalous though. There's got to be more. But then when we go to God, we don't ask for him to get more out of us, do we? When it's God's turn to give grace to us, we love grace. When it's our turn to restore or discipline and then restore people back to ourselves. Repentance doesn't seem like quite enough. We want them to feel what they've done. We want them to pay back what they've done. But we have a savior that's stronger than our sin. And a savior that's stronger than our self-righteousness. That makes us think we're so good and the other person so bad. And we have a savior that when we confess, he forgives. And then gives us the power when someone else confesses, repents. 
we can forgive because we've been forgiven that much. Let's look at the text real quickly. This is kind of the main section of the text that brings home the point in verse 6. Look, for such a one, the punishment by the majority is enough. So Paul wrote a letter, you need to deal with these people. And guess what? They did. They disciplined him. The word for punishment is the word they censured him. They disciplined him from the fellowship of the church. They dealt with him. And now he's saying such a one, the punishment is enough. Why is it enough? Because he's repented. You see, the goal of punishment is not to get them even so that every drop of blood they took from Paul, we take from them, and then we can be okay again. Everything they've done wrong to you, you can do wrong to them. And then we can be okay, and then we can forgive as long as we're even. Aren't you thankful Jesus doesn't do that for you in your sin? And that's what he does here. The punishment's enough. Why is it enough? Because he's restored. So what do you do now? Forgive him. Comfort him. The punishment was enough because it accomplished the purpose of repentance. And it accomplished the purpose of repentance. Now forgive and restore. The word for restore has this very, or I'm, I'm sorry, the word for uh, comfort has this wide range of meaning from encouragement to comfort to exhortation to challenge. And I think what it's saying is not just comfort him, everything's fine, don't worry about it. It's let me help you walk to Jesus because that's the goal. Right? So I have repented. I've returned. I've now forgiven. Here, let me walk beside you deeper into Jesus and walk beside you deeper into the relationships with the church. Let me help you back. And so do you help your friends walk back to Jesus? Do you help the people around you that have broken maybe towards you or towards other people? Do you help them back to Jesus and then back into the good graces of the people around them? Because so often we're just tempted to think, oh, I'll just kind of overlook it. I'll just minimize it. I won't worry about it. I'll avoid it. Or I'll avoid them. But if we do that, we're not helping them back to Jesus. We're not comforting them. Forgive and comfort. Forgive and encourage. Forgive and support. Forgive and walk them back into the hands of Jesus. And walk them back into the hands of the people around them. That's the goal. And it began as they turned back. But it can only be continued as the church does its part. Right? And so, the punishment is enough. Forgive him. Comfort him. Why should we? He messed with you, Paul. We gotta get even. We should do it so that they're not overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. The word for overwhelmed is drowned. Paul doesn't want this guy drowned because of his offense. He wants him restored because of his offense. And Jesus is talking about forgiveness. Somebody goes and talks to him. He's like, or Peter goes, how many times should we forgive, Lord? Seven times. And Jesus is like, okay, let me tell you the story. There's a king and there's this guy who owes him like two million bucks. And he's about to throw him into prison for his debt. And the guy just falls at his feet. Have mercy on me. I'll pay you back. I'll do it. Just, just have mercy. Don't put me in jail. And the king's like, the debt is canceled. Go. And as he's leaving, he runs into this other servant, and this servant owes him like 20 bucks. And I gotta get my 20 bucks. And so he takes him by the neck and strangles him and chokes him. Give me my $20! Have him thrown in prison! And the king hears about it. He has him thrown like, you wicked servant, I forgave you two million bucks, you can't forgive this guy 20 bucks, what's wrong with you? But isn't that us so often? We love that God has forgiven us an eternal, infinite debt of sin. 
and offers us the grace of his presence for eternity, the good favor of his grace for eternity. But don't you know what they said about me, God? Don't you know how they're hurting my feelings? Don't you know how they're not meeting my needs? Don't you know how they stab me in the back? Don't you know? And we want to choke them for 20 bucks. Instead of remember the outpouring of the lavish, rich, infinite grace of God in our lives. So that we're always ready for someone that would receive it to pour that grace back into their life as well. Restore them, forgive them. We don't want people to drown in their guilt. We want them to be rescued out of it. We don't want people to drown in their shame. We want them to be rescued out of it. And then he kind of just finished up as a second reason he wrote the letter. I wrote the letter first because if I came to you, I was going to blow everything up. And so I I wrote to you instead of coming. That was the last week. But then I wrote to you this week. Why did he write? Because I wanted to test your obedience. You said we repented. So now are you going to deal with the people that have factioned the church? Are you going to deal with the people that have offended? And they did. And he's like, I wrote to test you. You've proved yourselves right or or valuable. Now just go reaffirm your love for him. He's turned back. Go welcome him back. Don't, Don't exact punishment from him. Don't try to get paid back. He's there. Restore him. Forgive him. Love him. Walk him back to Jesus. Are we a welcome back to Jesus kind of people? Are you a welcome back to Jesus kind of person? There's times I'm not. There's times I want them to just feel so bad about what they've done. Maybe if they just felt a little worse about it, I'll feel a little better. But that's not the gospel. I don't have a pay it back kind of savior. And so I don't want to be a pay it back kind of Christian. I want to be the kind who will walk in to bring restoration. Do you? I want to be the kind of person that will walk in and help people back to Jesus. Even if sometimes that means firmness. Even if sometimes that means hard. I want them to walk back to Jesus. I want to help my friends walk back to Jesus. I want to help my wife walk back to Jesus. I want to help my kids walk back to Jesus. I want to help myself walk back to Jesus. And I'm willing to do what it takes to do that. I want to be. I want you to be those kind of friends. I want want you to be those kind of people too. Will we be the kind that helps people walk back to Jesus? The last step. Lack of discipline and restoration gives Satan an opportunity to destroy. Lack of discipline and lack of restoration gives Satan an opportunity to destroy. In our relationships and in the church, there's two very dangerous extremes. There's the extreme of cheap grace. We don't demand remittance. We don't demand change because there's grace. Let's just cover it with grace. Grace covers everything, right? Let's just paper over all the issues and let's let people drown in their sin because, you know, grace. But that is a such a small view of grace. It's so cheap. It's not a bloody cross kind of grace. It's a wallpaper angel kind of grace. There's cheap grace and then there's the harsh. I am God's get everybody straight kind of guy. It is my personal mission to tell everybody what's wrong with them, except for myself, of course, right? But everybody else, I need to tell them what's wrong with them, and I need to make sure they get it right. And if they don't get it right, I need to make sure that harsh destruction follows. I don't want to open the way to come back. I just want them to feel the thunder. And if they feel bad enough, long enough, maybe, possibly, eventually, they can get back in. And those are such dangerous extremes. 
Cheap grace has no demands for return to Jesus, which means no demands to come back to life and out of slavery. And then harsh, legalistic, whatever, gives no way back to Jesus. It cuts the road off. You couldn't work hard enough to get back to Jesus. And both of them serve to cut people off from life. But here's what's true about sin. Sin is misery. Even if you don't feel the full weight of it, it is. And we don't want people to be miserable. Sin is destruction. Even if you don't see it. Sin is destroying their lives. Sin is destroying the rippled out from their lives into everybody else's lives. It's doing that. We don't want to help people destroy themselves. Sin enslaves. I don't want the people around me enslaved. Do you? It's cheap grace when we don't help people. But I also don't want to be somebody that makes it harder to get to Jesus than Jesus does. Because he's always there welcoming. I mean, you think about the prodigal son. The father is just waiting day after day, scanning the horizon for his son to come back. And when he does, the son doesn't even have to get to him. He runs to catch him. That's God waiting on dispensing grace into our lives. He's not waiting on you to earn your way back. And we want to be people that help people get to Jesus, not make it harder to get to Jesus. And so look as he wraps up. I've forgiven, you forgive. We've done it in the presence of Christ. Just for the sake of time, I won't go through those. But why do we do this? What is the purpose of discipline? And what is the purpose of then restoring this brother back? So that you're not outwitted by Satan. We're not ignorance of the design of Satan. Satan shows up in chapter 4, chapter 6, chapter 11, chapter 12. He's all over this book. We don't want Satan to have an advantage in your church. Because you let this fester. We don't want Satan to have an advantage in this church. Because you cut people off and don't let them back. We don't want Satan to have an advantage. Because a, a solo sheep is a very easy sheep to eat to get eaten. We don't want Satan to have free reign over any believer who wants to get back to Jesus. And so think about when you're like, no, you can't come back. You've got to earn your way back. And you drown them in sorrow. You've just fattened them up for the kill of Satan. And think how Satan, he is so good at his job. Right? He's like, you know, grace, that's such a powerful concept. Overlook it. Ignore it. Grace. Just nudge us a little further in that direction. Or, hey, you finally dealt with it. Good job. Make them pay. Make them work hard for it. Make sure they pay back what they owe. A little nudge in the right direction. And that's what Satan does. He is so good at taking the direction we're walking and just nudging us that one step too far into it. He's so good at how you've built this wonderful defense of how you're the perfect husband and it's all your wife's fault. He's so good at just nudging you into, yeah, that's right. That's right. You should do something about it. He's so good at, as a parent, you know they should honor you. You know they should respect you. Go one step too far. He's so good at that stuff. Can you step back and see it in your life? And see it in your responses as you start to like, you know what? That, that was wrong and they hurt me and they shouldn't have done that. Oh, you should be mad. I would not take that. Nobody would treat me that way. Or with your kids. I mean, you get out of control angry with your kids. And it starts right because they should respect you. They should honor you. Honor your father and mother. First commandment with a promise. The Bible says it. I'm all the more justified. 
And he just pushes us that one step to where our justified anger or our justified offense becomes anger we justify. Destruction we justify. He's so good at it. But we don't want each other outwitted by Satan. We don't want to give the advantage to Satan in our relationships. We don't want to give the advantage to Satan in the church. And so let's don't be ignorant of the way he works. Let's go against it. There's a few practical things. I'm going to hit them quickly and then we'll close out. Protect people when you talk about issues. I want to just encourage you, especially when it comes to your spouse. Protect your spouse in the way you talk about your spouse to other people. That does not mean you can't share openly what's going on because you do need help. You know, we're, we're challenging you to relationships of growth and change. You need that. But just protect, guard, be wise about the level of sharing so that you're not increasing dishonor and discredit. You're giving enough clarity to actually help you. Same thing with your kids. Like, man, don't, don't run your kids down to other people. Just give enough information to be to get clarity and, and help. When somebody makes you mad or upsets you in church or makes you mad and upsets you in your friend group, be careful what you share. Don't run them down unnecessarily. Guard your words. It's going to make it easier for restoration to happen. It's going to make it easier for restoration to happen with that friend also. Second, forgive and restore quickly. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Don't go to bed angry. Clean that stuff up and clean that stuff out. And then lastly, courageous love is gracious and firm. Love is not always kisses and rainbows. Sometimes it's very direct conversations. Sometimes it is grabbing by the hand very forcefully and saying, we're going towards Jesus. And unless you yank away, I'm pulling you with me. Sometimes it is, I'm going to go help you get this right. Sometimes it is, come on, we've got to have a conversation. Love is firm and love is gracious. And sometimes the situation requires one or the other. Discipline is a weapon of gospel warfare. It's a weapon to defeat Satan and to drive people back into the arms of Jesus. Let's war for each other. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we bow and we ask to be the kind of people you desire.